0: thought before the actual sermon, Um, you know, you have this vivid image of the church on the front lines of war, literally, in the Ukraine, Um, but that's really where the Lord wants the church at all times, at the front line of where the battles and the wars are at. And just two things in the announcements kind of demonstrate that. As one, the River West Food Pantry, as a way of being on the front lines of where poverty and homelessness exists in the city, um, and uh, you know, with foster care, that's being on the front lines of where the brokenness of family happens. The Lord calls us to the front lines. So just remember that. Um, okay. Our scripture this morning comes from. The gospel. Well, it's not the gospel. It's the Book of Genesis, um, chapter eleven, verses one through nine. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from east from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and settled there. And they said to one another, "Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly." And they had brick for stone, and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build a city for ourselves, and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this only and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come now, let us go down and there and confuse their, their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. The word of the Lord. Lord, uh, we ask your your light and illumination as we reflect um, on the ways in which human civilizations and nations um, rebel against you, in various ways, and the way we participate in that. We ask that you give us, continue to give us a true picture of what it means to be a human being, created in your image, to worship and love you, and to love one another. And so, be with us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the defining marks of modern life is how much our everyday lives are hemmed in by technology, Every waking moment of our lives um, really were encountered by some form of technology, right? So, um, TVs, computers, cars, um, internet, power power tools, espresso machines, CT scanners, uh, microphones, which is, this is a new microphone, Uh, you know, they're just, the list goes on and on, vaccines, bicycles, high-rises, aircraft carriers, atomic bombs. Our life today is simply inconceivable without technology. And our dependence on technology is pretty much inescapable. Just consider how much your life um, gets thrown in disarray when you lose your smartphone or it's broken, right? I mean, you just go crazy. it's, it's real. it's literally disruptive to our lives, and, and smartphones have become part of the infrastructure of our everyday lives, right? We come to depend upon them. Um, and we, we also, we don't really think a lot about the technologies we use. We just, once we accept them and start using them, we don't really think about them. They just sort of, kind of come into our lives, and, and our tendency is to, is to approach technology um, accepted technologies as largely value-free, as, as kind of neutral mediums. Um, you know, except in really extreme situations, we're not gonna, we generally not use moral terms, or like a technology is inherently moral or immoral, right? What makes technology good or bad is, 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 is how you use it, right? It's so, you know, hammers are good for building houses, but they're, they're bad for hitting people. Like, don't use a hammer to hit somebody, that's evil. Um, but this way of thinking about technology and discerning its, its use in our life only takes us so far. Um, because it, we tend to assume that technology um, is something that is distinct from ourselves, that's separate, that's outside of us. Something that we're largely in control of. Um, but our actual experience of technology in the modern world is, is far more immersive all-encompassing and total. Um, It's not simply that we use technology. There's a way in which technology uses us. Um, Our lives have been so fused with technology that we can hardly distinguish our own humanity um, from our technologies, right? I want you to consider this. Imagine if every technology created in the past simply to disappear from your life like that. Imagine that. Like, your life would all of a sudden seem um, unimaginable and unlivable. And I'm only talking about the 70s, right? (laughs) You're still gonna have a car. (laughs) But imagine that, right? Um, Technology is a manifestation an expression of human nature. And I think the question we have to bring to the conversation about technology is this. Is this technology a healthy and true expression of what it means to be human? Um, Technology has been around since the dawn of time. Um, But there is something, there is something distinct in the modern world. Um, There's something different about our relationship to technology in the past 100, years, um, there's a sense in which technology is not just the tools we use, but it's an actual worldview. Um, we have so much hope that we put in technological development and innovation to solve the world's great problems. And technology shapes the patterns of our daily lives in really profound ways. It, It shapes our values, it shapes how we communicate, it shapes even now today how we date and get married and fall in love, how we connect and how we think about community. It it shapes even our perceptions of God and our place in the world. It is an all-immersive reality and it happens in ways which don't require us to think, it You use something, and it just changes the way you experience yourself in the world, right? That's why it's so powerful, Um, but it's also why it's so important for us to step back and reflect on its meaning in our lives. And I would say, as a whole, Christians have not done a very good job of thinking critically about our use of technology. Um, We kind of just go with the flow and adopt whatever the culture um, does. But I think we need to be more critical and discerning. And that in large part is simply because it's so formative. It's so formative of our sense of ourselves in the world. Um, And the modern technological world has its own sort of trajectory, (laughs) its own pathway, its own way of thinking spiritually about the world. And it is not one that leads us in a natural way to the true worship of God and understanding of ourselves. And here I wanna evoke the Apostle Paul from what he says in Romans 12, which was our confession. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, arguably there's nothing that has more conforming power in our lives Um, than the technologies that shape and form us. Um, And so I think it's really important for us to develop some categories and ways of thinking about its good and bad use in our lives. And so that's what I wanna do today. I want us to think about the meaning of technology. It is something grounded in the image of God. So there's a good side of it, but it's also something that our fallen nature uh, seizes upon and amplifies in, in evil. So I want to, you might think, what does the Bible have to say about technology? Actually, a good bit. And so I want to I show you that. Um, the first explicit mention of technology in the Bible is not very promising. <laughs> uh, it emerges in the city of Cain. The city of Cain. Remember, Cain murdered his brother Abel. And there we learn, in the city of Cain, this is in Genesis chapter 4, uh, that one of Cain's offspring, Tubal Cain, it says, he became the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Now, you might think, oh, well, if technology starts in the city of Cain, that it must be bad, right? But that, that's not, that's not a, a good way to actually read um, and interpret. The reality is, is that after the fall, um, all civilizations emerge with a mix of blessing and curse, right? Good things and bad things. And you look in the city of Cain, you see a lot of good things. You see the development of arts and music, of poetry, um, of of animal husbandry, of technology, but then you also see a lot of bad things. You see uh, celebrity culture, that's just a bad thing. I can't be redeemed, I'm sorry. Uh, You see polygamy, and then also urban violence. Those are all the things that are right there in that beginning of that city. The Bible's view of technology, um, I would put it this way, is, is ambivalent, right? That's how I would characterize it. It's not tech positive, like our culture, but it's also not anti-tech, anti-technology. It simply recognizes the presence of technology as just a natural part of all human civilizations. And, and this brings to, I think, a really important point about how the Bible approaches the category of technology from the way that um, other ancient Near Eastern religions of the time did as well. And this is a really crucial distinction. Um, in the Canaanite mythologies of this period, uh, the arts of human civilization and development of tools were actually attributed to the gods themselves. And more, you would probably be more familiar with, if you know Greek mythology, that Prometheus and Athena are the ones that sort of take from the heavens, like fire and these other things, that human beings kind of take hold of, right? So there's this kind of mythological view of technology as something that is, we've stolen from the gods, right? And one commentator um, contrasts this with the biblical approach to civilization and technology. He, he says, we, we find that all, in the Bible that only ordinary human beings, you find only, only ordinary human beings and there is no mythological element whatsoever. And this is the great innovation introduced by the Torah, it discards the mythological tradition and opposes the blurring of the boundaries between the Godhead and mankind. And it emphasizes the human civilization was of human origin. So, what that means is this technology does not have divine origin, it has merely human origin. <clears throat> and because it has merely human origin, it's a mix of good and bad. It's impacted uh, by human fallenness and sinfulness. And I think the way i would the point application wise why this distinction is important is this is that the bible demythologizes technology and by what that means is that it takes the aura and the mystique away from it as something that's somehow divine see in our world modern world we, you know we don't think that technology comes from the gods we you know nobody's thinking that but we certainly think that technology can make us like gods right that somehow if we have this new breakthrough or this new innovation that that we can uh, save ourselves or save the world, right? I mean, all you have to do is just watch some (laughs) Toyota commercials during the Olympics and you can come to believe that nothing is impossible, right? Nothing is impossible. The Bible is very clear that there is no technological solutions (laughs) for humanity's deepest problems, right? But, so that's, that's a little bit critical, but let me come back here and speak positively about technology as well, because um, this is not an anti-technology sermon. I'm certainly leaning in that direction because n- nowhere in our culture is anybody ever telling you to pause and think about what you're doing with your tech. So it's important to push back hard at times. But the Bible is not anti-technology. Um, technology is an expression of human nature created in the image of God. Um, God may not have invented technology, but he created human beings that did, right? Uh, After making humans in his own image, you remember the Genesis narrative in the beginning, right? God uh, gave them dominion and authority, said be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then God in Genesis Genesis two, he puts the man and the woman in the garden to work it and to keep it, right? Now, when God creates and God works, he doesn't need tools. He creates out of nothing. But human beings, <laughs> we need tools, and it's hard to imagine how you work a garden without tools, right? And so there's, there is a, there's a natural sense in which technology flows from what we call the cultural mandate, which is those commands related to how God wants us to be in creation. To exercise dominion and care, nurture, to work, and to keep. The, so technology is a natural development of this aspect of the image of God in us. Um, So when technology is an expression of human nature that's seeking to obey God's commands, uh, and God's desires for and and respects the limits of creatures, it's a good thing, it's not a bad thing, right? I just wanna say that because it's easy to sometimes be very negative um, or feel like it's all negative around technology. But what must be maintained then in this? Um, Technology is not something that is outside of us, right? Um, that exists somehow independently of our nature as human beings. It's, it's really, an, it's an expression and it's a manifestation of what it means to be a person and a human in some sense. Um, the Bible does not have a dystopian view of technology. It has a dystopian view of human nature. <laughs> That's what it, I mean, it has a dystopian view of human nature, um, which is responsible for technology. And so this dystopian perspective on human nature does not cancel out the goodness of of creation or the goodness of of being image bearers. But the reality is this. What we see in technology is we see at the same time the greatness of humanity and its wretchedness. At the same time we see the greatness and the wretchedness of humanity, right? We can put a man on the moon, but we can also drop a bomb an atomic bomb, and kill an entire city in seconds. Thousands of people, right? (laughs) That's what we're able to do with our technology. And so the appropriate question we always have to come back to when we're talking about technology and its right use or wrong use in our life is, we have to come back to the question of the human being. What is a human being? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does it mean to be a creature with limits? Are there certain technologies that lead us away from our true humanity? That always has to be on our radar screen. Now, the the Tower of Babel um, has been rightly interpreted as a cautionary tale of kind of the frightening power and possibility of human beings when they're able to be unified in a task. Um, And in the story of the of the tower, what you have is human beings that they set themselves to this task of building a tower that reaches up into the heavens. Um, If you look at our text, it says the human culture uh, speaking to one another, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now God takes notice. And it's kind of ironic, because they're building a tower up into the heavens, and God's, you know, notices, and he's like, let me go down (laughs) to see. Right, there's a little bit of irony there. They think they're getting into heaven, but they're really not even coming close. And so the the writer here, a little bit of a, a satire, you're like, oh, I'm gonna come down and look at your tower in the heavens. So God comes down and takes notice, and he wants to investigate. But what God says is quite remarkable and surprising. He says, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this, is the o- and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. God is not threatened by this tower, to be clear. Nevertheless, he recognizes the dangerous potential of a, hum- of a humanity that is united in its sinfulness and rebellion against him. And so, um, one of the things that you should see in this story, which is really the last story of the primeval narrative narrative of Genesis 1 through 11, uh, there's a straight line from Eden to Babel, a straight line from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to Babel. And in Babel, what you should hear is is that similar temptation that the serpent uh, lays before the woman the Lord knows that when you eat of it, you will know good and evil, and you will become like God. And what you see in this story as human beings, again, seeking to exercise their own, taking to themselves the knowledge of good and evil, and trying to become like God. And it's helpful to know a little bit about like, what kind of tower is this. Is this like a temple or something? And in the ancient world, uh, there were these things called ziggurats, and there's still archeological remains of them. They weren't temples. They're just towers, there's no interior. They weren't, they weren't, um, they're literally staircases into heaven. That's what they're meant to be. Staircases up to heaven, into the gods. Um, And by building this tower, humanity in a sense is they're trying to storm the gates of heaven. We're trying to get to heaven ourselves, to take command of creation without God. And so the tower is not a monument to God, it's a monument to ourselves, to our own ingenuity, to our own Um, glory. Again, it is us trying to make a name for ourselves, us congregating in one spot instead of spreading out in order to secure a place for ourselves in creation without God. So the question then is, well how does this story help us think about technology? Um, I just want to be clear, first and foremost this is a story about Collective human pride and rebellion of, in a collective way, right? We've had stories of individuals of Adam and Eve, and we've had stories of community of sin within a brothers, against brother, and now what we see is the sinfulness of a whole civilization and what that's possible and can do. Um, but what's revealing here about the, um, technology is, is actually technology does play a role in this story, right? Um, small, but there as well, right? They, the people, they seem to have developed some new building materials and some new building techniques that actually might be able to get them through the sky, right? Um, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, right? They've got the material they need to get into heaven. See, at the, at the heart of human sinfulness is a desire for us to overcome our creatureliness um, to put ourselves in the place of God and the thing about technology is is that increases our power it amplifies and has a potential for amplifying our our wickedness our fallenness and this is what God sees and he sort of intervenes to slow things down now um, drawing from this story I I just to be a little, try to be practical. I mean, this is such a vast topic, technology. Um, but I, I want to draw what I, I'll call them, uh, the, the the temptations of Babel, right? The the Babel temptations of technology, right? I mean, it, when it comes to the right use of technology in your life, it's never simply a question of cases, but most of the times, it's it's it requires a lot of discernment and prudence. It's like I wish I didn't have a smartphone. I wish I could just throw it away, but I, I honestly cannot get along now in the world the way it's rigged. And so I have to just be really discerning about how and when or when I don't use the phone, right? And I think that's the case in, in most technology. It's never just a this or that or it's good or bad. It's, it's learning to use discernment and have principles to be able to, to say no or to stop and set something aside. And so I wanna just give you what I'll, I'll, these are some boundaries. So when technology starts doing this in your heart or in your life, you need to step back. These are from that, the story. Um, there's a lot I could do but don't have time for. But there's three temptations I just want to draw to your attention that I think the, the story of the tower uh, highlights for us. Uh, the first temptation, I'll just call it uh, grandiosity and self-promotion. Grandiosity and self-promotion. Um, Technology enables our desire for grandiosity. Grandiosity is basically that quality of of wanting to be impressive, um, wanting um, to be imposing and influential. Um, You know the people, why do they build a tower? What's part of the reason? To make a name for themselves. Like they want to make a name for themselves. They want to be great. They desire glory and recognition for their greatness, and this tower can be a, a, a witness to that. I mean, there's so many examples here to, to, to draw from, but I'll just go to social media, right? So much of social media is built around this idea of grandiosity. The more followers you can get, the more likes you can get, um, if, and if you're especially if you're trying to sell something or sell yourself and your influence, you capitalize that, and if you have enough followers, you can actually monetize it and, and just do that, right? And you become authority all of a sudden, an influencer. Um, you know, this is an easy example, right? But it applies to other areas as well. You think of per- performance enhancing drugs. I mean, why do people, why do athletes use performance enhancing drugs? Because they want to win. They want to be better than everybody else, right? They want to be great. They want to make a name for themselves. You know. Technology is a way for us to um, amplify ourselves in the world and I'm not saying that you should never uh, Try to use influence in, in righteous and well ways, but the heart is always wanting that sort of grand like we we aspire to make a name for ourselves and As Christians when we think about technology in our lives, we need to step back and say Am I trying to glorify my name or is it the glory of God's name, right? So that's one one temptation. Uh, The second temptation that we see, especially in the tower story, is what I'll just call uh, escapism. (laughs) Technology as a form of escapism, an escape from the world, an escape from the body. Um, We use technology to escape the problems of this world and the suffering of this world, as well as our natural limits as creatures. Uh, If you go back to the story, God, um, assume, you know, there's a sense in which the disobedience of the people is that they, re- they congregated in one spot, they didn't fill out, they didn't fill the earth and scatter, they, they concentrate. They, and, and there's a lot here, but part of the, 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 the issue here is like they, they weren't really being um, what God called them to be as image bearers, as those who are caring for creation, who are ruling over creation in the right way. Building the tower, there's a sense of escape, right? We're gonna go up to the heavens. And I, I think there, there's a similar thing for us in our technology is that we use technology as a way of escape. I mean, we, we you know, distract ourselves with you know, Netflix or video games or, or just doom scrolling on our phones. Um, we escape, right? The problems of our life, the problems of this world, we, we, we use technology to help keep suffering at bay. So there's a kind of escapism, but there's also a way that we use technology to escape our bodies where we don't, you know, have to run up against the limits of being, having a body and being creatures. And, you know, in this post pandemic world uh, where, you know, we got very used to Zoom meetings and virtual community and, you know, there's, I'm glad, I'm thankful that God allows us to do that. Um, But as I say repeatedly, you know, uh, virtual community is no substitute for real community. Because real community requires bodies, uh, real worship requires bodies, embodied worship. There's no substitute for that, right? Again, there's, there's, um, there's ways that we escape, we try to escape life in the body. Um, so that's the second one. The, the third one, um, the third temptation doesn't directly come from the tower story, but actually goes back to Cain and the founding of his city. And it is our temptation to try to use technology to overcome the curse. Remember the curse that God gives, the curses God gives after sin, right? Death is the primary one. But there's all, you know, we live in a world of death and disease and disability and brokenness, and um, technology is appropriately used for making life livable in a world with those things, with the curse, right? I'm very thankful that we had the technological wherewithal to create vaccines to kind of tamp down the spread of COVID, right? I think that is a good use of technology. However, there's a way in which we go across this boundary where it's not just like, we're gonna try to keep disease and death at at bay, but we're actually gonna try to abolish death. We're gonna abolish disease. We're going to overcome the curse entirely. And I think this becomes really problematic. And this is where we tend to have a a view of technology as that which we can save, that can save us, right? It can ultimately liberate us. And we really put a lot of hope in our technology to solve all the world's greatest problems. We try to overcome the curse. But the reality is this, you know this, I mean, Um, technology cannot save us. Uh, Technology uh, cannot make you a a virtuous person. Uh, Technology cannot give you the righteousness in your life which you lack. Technology cannot deliver you from the curse. It cannot deliver you from death, despite um, our transhumanist friends thinking to the contrary. So then where does our salvation come from? Where does our salvation come? It doesn't come through new technological innovation. It will not come through an ingenious human accomplishment or will it come through a grand and glorious influencer. Um, As we celebrate today on Palm Sunday, we remember that salvation comes through a relatively unknown Jewish man uh, who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was a messiah, that nobody was expecting. The people were looking for someone who was powerful and exciting, somebody who could exercise a show of strength and force and intelligence and deliver them. But instead what they get is something very different. And the Gospel of Matthew quotes Zechariah about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Behold your king, is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Jesus comes in humility and gentleness. The donkey is a very humble beast. It is not a Clydesdale. (laughs) It's a very humble beast. The Tower of Babel really um, symbolizes our orientation to salvation, our way of approaching salvation, which is it's something we have to ultimately achieve for ourselves. It's something that we ultimately have to achieve for ourselves. It's through a show of collective intelligence and willpower we can do it. But in Jesus, God turns everything upside down, right? Everything upside down. Salvation is not something that we have to ascend up into the heavens to get, but it actually comes down. It comes down to us. And the question is, will we recognize it in its form? Will we recognize salvation in its form? Because it is not impressive. It is not sexy. It is not sophisticated. It doesn't glitter. (laughs) It doesn't demonstrate the kind of awe and power that I think our hearts are often wanting. It is this Jewish man on a donkey. And the thing is that Jesus, he comes down. We want to escape the problems of this world. We want to escape our body. But Jesus comes down. The one who was above the earth, the one who didn't need to be a part of it, comes down into the middle of our mess. The one without body, the one who is a spirit, takes a body, and he comes down from heaven. And when he comes into the world, he doesn't like go around the suffering. He goes right to it. And he rides his donkey directly into the storm. And he rides directly into the heart of darkness, which is the place of the cross, the place of the curse, that is most concentrated. And he continues to go down to the very depths. But it is precisely in his going down that he goes up and he takes us with him. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus coming down from the mountains of heaven so that we don't have to by our own feeble ways to try to build ourselves up and find you, Lord. You come to us. Lord, give us wisdom and discernment as we think about our lives and and examine um, the way that technology impacts us. Help us to know when it is impacting negatively our relationship with you and with one another and what you've called us to be. And We give you thanks, Lord, that you sent your Son. And we, we thank you and we praise you. Um, and we, we shout and we sing just like the, they did in Jerusalem. Hosanna, loud hosanna. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I like to think of the Lord's Supper as a kind of technology.